Hello, everyone. Um, welcome if you're visiting because of family or we're dragged here or whatever. Um, you all look so handsome and beautiful, dressed nicely or not. J.D. JD Salinger once said that if God loves kittens, he doesn't love them anymore if they're wearing technicolored boots. Right? You are an amazing creature made in the image of God. It doesn't really matter what clothes you have on. You should have something on. Um, but we're glad that you're here. And um, so uh, um, every Sunday we have a worship service here at the church. So you're welcome to come if you don't normally. But uh, let me just dive right into uh, to Christmas. Since that's basically what it is, right? So um, I kind of noticed while we were getting ready for the service, looking at the stuff that Nicole and the team were preparing, that there's kind of a lot of songs about, about night— like for Christmas songs about night, um, and and a, a lot about Chris, about a lot about about uh, about winter. I don't know if you noticed that there's a lot about winter. And um, the funny thing about this is, is that most people know at this point that um, there's there isn't actually any historical evidence that Jesus was actually born in the winter time. But Christians have always been pretty accepting of the idea of Jesus of celebrating Jesus' birth in a winter, in the winter time because winter kind of carries the same metaphor um, that night does. You know? And in the, in the Bible, it really does say that the shepherds were out at night, watching their flocks at night, and the angels appeared to them, and they buggered off to Bethlehem to see the baby right quick. So it's decently likely Jesus was really born in the evening or at night. Um, but the, in case you don't know this, people hear all kinds of actually slander about how we got December 25th. Do you know how we got December 25th? It actually has nothing to do with the, like, the, like, indirect worship of Horus or, like, like, Roman, like, um, winter solstice or whatever. What, what actually happened was in the ancient world, um, historians believed, generally speaking, that great men and women, very, very great men and women, um, due to the providence of the gods, would be born and die on the same day. They believed that about Caesar. They believed that about lots of different people, that if you were truly great, the gods would so providentially govern your life that you would be born and die on the same day, and that would prove that you were great, right? And so Christians have always believed we knew when Jesus died, Good Friday— on that year, which would have been March 25th, which means he came into the world on March 25th, right? But he didn't come into the world when he was born. He came into the world in the Incarnation, which was, in Christian theology, the word of the Annunciation, when Mary became pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And since Jesus was the perfectly perfect human being, he came exactly nine months later, which would put his birth directly on December 25th. Now, and on one level, you could be like, well, Nick, it could be that the— ancient assumption that everybody died on the day they were born or came into the world was wrong. It's almost—well, it's, it's certainly wrong, okay? <laughs> but the, the idea that we, we celebrate the coming of Jesus in winter goes along with the true metaphor and truth that Jesus was born at night. Because in a lot of ways, winter and night have two things in common. They're both kind of charming, and everybody's basically waiting for them to get over. You know what I'm saying? It's kind of a, a normal thing. And so when you, you think about night, night is the sort of thing that's like charming for a little while, and then you're kind of like, if you can't sleep or if your baby's crying or something, you're like, when is this going to end? Right? And winter in Wisconsin especially is very similar to that, you know? And so um, when Jesus was born, though, the sort of dark night or the long winter that the people he was born among that they were experiencing was, was kind of a—it was a bigger metaphor than that, right? It had been a long winter and a long night, religiously and spiritually speaking, right? God had not spoken through the prophets for something like 400 years. They had been subjugated by the Romans and were a slave people. Um, they, 
their line of kings or their great leaders had failed. So there was no, there was no one to look to. There was no one who was about to lead them out of anything. They were a leaderless people. The people who functioned as their leaders were the religious leaders. And it was very clear to Israelites at the time that their religion through the Sadducees was growing increasingly more corrupt as the wicked King Herod was corrupting them. It wasn't a good moment. And you might think, well, that's back in Israel. Well, there's a lot of—honestly, there's a lot of Americans that feel some connection with that. They feel like—I mean, I'm seeing more and more bumper stickers for the next election. 2020, any functioning adult. You know, I mean, did, did you like your choice of leaders last time? You know I mean? So, so for, there's a lot of us that feel like maybe it's not as bad as Herod, but we, it almost feels like, where are the great statesmen? Where are the Winston Churchills? It's, it's not crazy to feel in this moment that, like, where are the great leaders? And—, and Christians believe in the presence of the Holy Spirit, that God is still speaking by leading us and keeping us in step with the Spirit. But when it comes to increasingly, increasing the amount of written revelation, we haven't gotten a new book in something like 2,000 years, not 400, right? And I mean, you could kind of go through this and you could say, well, Nick, isn't this, isn't this kind of like a night? Is it, wouldn't it be a little bit too celebratory to feel like we've already received everything? Because no, we haven't, Right? So people want to ask certain questions when they feel like they're in the night or they're in the winter. There's basically two questions. One, why is it still night? <laughs> or why is it still winter? And two, when is this going to be over? Right? Now, for some of you, if you're young or something and like you, you haven't suffered much, you might be like, no, I think this is great. You know, it's night. It's like we can just have more nightlife. It's fantastic. You know, but for most people who've been living in the world as it is, joy is something we fight for. Life isn't easy. Like I said last Sunday, if your life is easy, it's probably because you're lazy, okay? People who attempt important things, who do things with their life and try to create goods, either for themselves or other people, real goods that are wholesome and meaningful, they find that life is very difficult. And they, they wish things were easier, and they know things aren't the way they should be on some level, and they would like for them to be better, and they're wondering how much longer they have to put up with this night, how much longer every little inch of goodness has to be fought for, either in your own soul, in your own behavior, in your own choices, or like in all the choices of the people around you, right? Now, I want to get into this by means of um, international foreign policy and counterterrorism ideology, okay? <laughs> so just hang with me for a couple of minutes on this. It's not going to be too bad. So last year, I did a bunch of um, debate coaching, and the debate topic for the year was counterterrorism, and it was, should the United States substantially amend its policy concerning terrorism? And as I was reading one of the papers on counterterrorism, it talked about counterterrorism functioning with four basic groups of people. There's four interplaying groups of people. One is the authority that the terrorists have a grievance against. Usually it's a government or a racial group or a religion. Okay? So death to America. Okay? So America is the authority, right? Or Israel or whoever, right? And then you have the terrorist group. This, these are the people who believe that they have a grievance bad enough to terrorize and kill people. Okay? And then—but that's not it. See, some people think, well, those are the two groups, and one group should kill the other. That's not really how it works. In the midst of these two groups, there's this huge group of people, which you can just call the involved population. These are the people that are stuck between the terrorists and the authority. And in that group of involved people, there's a small group of people— well, it depends on the size. The size is depending a little bit. Who, like, kind of sympathize with the terrorists, but don't really like what they're doing. But they're not going to turn them in either. And they might give them a little bit of money, but they're not going to blow anything up. And that group of people is a very, very important group of people. Now, um, the United States government, both under the President Obama's administration and President Trump's, and 
back to President Bush's, have determined there's at least three ways you can go about attacking this. The first is direct suppression. Now, in the in Old Testament times in the ancient world, before like the Genevan Convention stuff, this was the tactic that was preferred. But the, the reason why that this worked in the ancient world is you didn't go in and kill a couple of people. You just went and killed everybody. You killed everybody you could, and then you enslaved everybody else, and there was no more terrorism. That's how that worked. Now, somewhere along the line, humans were like, I don't think that's good. I don't think we're supposed to be doing that. And once we decided we weren't supposed to be doing that, it didn't work anymore. Because if you just go in and you just try to do it without killing everybody, you don't get everybody, you make everybody angry, and everybody gets frustrated. What actually happens is, for the terrorists that you wipe out, you actually increase the size of the sympathetic population, you increase the number of terrorists, and you're actually losing ground rather than gaining ground. So that methodology has been pretty much abandoned by the United States military. The second one is infiltration, where you try to get spies inside the terrorist networks so you can figure out what's going on, and then you do like stings, and you kill people, and you do stuff, right? That doesn't really work very, very well either, because you can't get enough spies in there. The people who are in the network tend to be highly committed. You can't really get in very deep. It's very difficult. And then even when you do go in and you take somebody out, what the terrorist group does is they use social media to blame that death on the authority anyway. They still say it's this group's fault, and the sympathetic population grows. It's unhelpful in the end. It doesn't really work enough. The third is what is simply called counterinsurgency, which is basically this. Yes, we have to do what we can to stop the terrorists themselves, but the real people that are in play is the involved population. That's who matters. It's all the people who live in this country, or among this people group, or have this religion, or you're in this group that are in play, that the terrorists are coming out of, and that we are trying to help become peaceful, right? So what we need to do is, we need to go into that group of people and demonstrate the legitimacy of the authority that the terrorists seem to hate. We have to show that the grievances are in fact false, that they're being used and lied to, and only if we can substantiate that the authority is a good authority, can we actually turn the hearts of the people and shrink the sympathetic group and then limit the amount of recruits until the terrorist group gets smaller. That's the only way that really works. And for the most part, over the last three administrations, the wonks all basically seem to agree that that's the main thing you've got to do. Okay, now where are we going with this? <laughs> Essentially what that means is you— You've got to actually go in and create a rebellion against the rebellion to save the rebels. That's what you've got to do. Right? You can't squash the rebellion because then you'll kill everybody. You actually have to create a rebellion against the rebellion. Because you're really after rebels, and rebels like rebellions, and they're looking for something inspiring, something that's, good, that's better than the status quo. If you're just like, let's just go back to the status quo. Well, the status quo has been attacked and lied about. They're predisposed against it. You have to create a, something that feels like a new good, a new rebellion against the old rebellion. And then the rebels are like, okay, well, maybe that's better. Right? Now, over the last several weeks, we were doing a series at High Point called Jesus the Incarnate Warrior. And one of the questions that you have to ask is like, well, what kind of warrior? Because he's not killing people. Right? Nor, nor does he kill people, and nowhere does he tell his followers to kill people. And yet, all through the life of Jesus, he's portrayed both in the Old Testament prophesying about him, in his life, and as he's talked about afterwards, he's portrayed as a kind of warrior. And the answer is, he is the original anointed counterinsurgent against the greater rebellion. That's what he is. He is the great one who rebels against the great rebellion to save rebels. Right? He's not—he's not yet a king who's just coming in and killing everybody who stands against him. 
What he knows is that the great majority of the human population has been made an, made an asset of a lying terrorist who has attacked the reputation of the good authority of the Creator and has duped a whole population of humanity into serving his ends. This goes all the way back to the garden, right? Where a good Creator makes a fantastically beautiful world and he makes human beings in his own image, and he gives them a creative responsibility and a world there to co-create with him, and he gives them a future and beauty and love and romance and pleasure and goodness, and the serpent comes along, and what does he do? He lies about the goodness of the authority, and he turns Adam and Eve into the first terrorist assets to be used against the one who created them, and he's been doing it ever since, ever since. And so the, the reason why there's still night is because Jesus is still on this mission of counterinsurgency in humanity. He is doing the work in us. We are the involved population. He is doing the work in us to draw us out of being the assets of evil, back to the good authority of the Creator in a way that doesn't cause bloodshed, increase what seems like the good argument of the terrorist, Satan, and allows us to lose our sympathy for sin, death, and hell that targets us because we're, we want change. We want things to be better. We're open to a rebellion, and he has to come and give us a better rebellion to turn back the hearts of rebels to himself. And that's what he's done, right? And, he, he, and one of the things you have to remember, too, is that this work is the most dangerous work. Jesus once said it to people. He said, listen, because you know who God's counterinsurgents have always been? And the Bible just calls them prophets. The prophets are, the, are God's counterinsurgents, where he sends someone into a group of people who have been completely lied to by the terrorist and to reawaken them that they've believed a lie. And do you know what the involved population that's sympathetic to the terrorist does with people like that? They kill them. They kill them. And Jesus says that in his ministry. He says, listen, you guys have killed every single prophet from Abel on the third page of the Bible all the way to Zechariah who died a couple of years before me. Right? And he even, he's even a good enough spy to use that to lead up to his own death, to show them in his own death that when they stepped up to kill him, believing the lies of the terrorists to be used by him to do the greatest evil, they weren't taking his life. He was only ever laying it down for them. Knowing before he ever came that that would be the best argument that could ever be made that the liar was a liar and the great creator, the authority, was the only real truth teller and that we have been assets and dupes lied to and sent on nothing but suicide missions since the day of the Great Rebellion. And he has come to be the light in that darkness, the dawn of that evening, and he has come to be the first flicker of warmth in that winter. He is the one who has started the new rebellion against the rebellion of the evil one so that we rebels can be saved. Does that make sense? And you see this in the theme of light all the way through the story of Jesus. Whether 700 years before he was born, it said this in Isaiah 9, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, 
He humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, two parts of Israel. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea and along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of, the dark, uh, land of darkness, a light has dawned. Now that may not sound like much to you, but these three geographical references, the, the Sea of Galilee, Galilee of the Gentiles, that region, the way of the sea that's all the way around the Sea of Galilee, and the, along the Jordan, which is a particular stretch of river above and below the Sea of Galilee. That area is podunk nowhere. It's not a highly populated area. It's basically farmland. The idea that like in one of the great prophecies of the coming Messiah, a bunch of podunk farmland would be like the place where the light would shine in the darkness can only refer to the one great historical figure that did virtually all of his ministry in those three podunk, non-centralized, rural geographic locations. But that's where he started his counterinsurgency. When Jesus was pushed on it in John 8, he said, he said to them, I am the light of the world. And whoever follows me will wa never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He says a few verses later, while I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. That is, his counterinsurgency is a means of light. The darkness is useful because those in darkness need light, and they tend to realize they're stubbing their toe, and they're bashing their face, and they begin to realize they're being sent on nothing but suicide missions, and they begin to look for something more. And when you're in the darkness, when it's really dark, is when people start looking for light. Right? But he never intended to stay. He always intended to make the argument of the cross, that he was the only one who really loved us because he was, he was the only one who would lay down his life for us. And so he left the responsibility for being the light with us when he said this. He said, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and give it, so it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Do you see the argument there? He's not saying Christians are the only ones who do good things. Listen, terrorists go home and love their children. They do good things. Murderers do good things. Insurgents do good things. Right? Sympathetic populations and involved people groups and authorities, they all do—everybody can do good things. He said, you are to be a light, and your light is to shine before man, men with a purpose so that they will see it in what? Praise your Father in heaven. See the goal? The goal is, is that we, as sinful rebels, would be brought into his counterinsurgent rebellion against sin and death and abuse and misuse of all people and the destruction of the image of God and folks and the ruining of the good creation he's given to us, and that we would be rebellious against that and no longer against God, but rebellious against what deserves our rebellion and that therefore we would be light. And so it's true we have a lot of darkness, a lot of night songs at Christmas time, and we light candles. And sometimes we don't know why we do it other than that it's really nostalgic and awesome. But as we get ready to light these candles, as we get ready to sing these carols, I want you to remember that God has a very specific plan for light. He has a very specific plan for why the darkness still persists. He has a very specific plan for our part in it. And it's at this moment where in the greatest darkness, Jesus came and was that great light. 
in the time of silence where God spoke his loudest word for those who were willing to listen, that we're meant to remember this. Two little things about the, the candle thing. Um, it's best if the person whose candle is lit lets the other person lay off of it rather than going around lighting with your flaming candle. And if you are uh, under the age of 26, I guess, or mischievous, just don't see how close you can get this to the hair of the woman in front of you. <laughs> just, just try to try to keep engaged with the songs, okay? Love you. All right, I'm gonna pray. I'm gonna light the candle. The youth are gonna light off of my candle, and then we'll all light our candles together and sing, okay? Let's pray. God, um, I pray that you would help us to see how bold and great a thing is Jesus' insurgence as a baby, that he came into our population as one of us, knowing that we were used and ill-disposed him, knowing that we'd killed every prophet that you'd ever sent, knowing that we were highly resistant and sympathetic to all the wrong things and very rebellious against you. And we know that you came to do the most dangerous work and the hardest work and the most thankless work in your incarnation. And we pray that you would help us to embrace you as the rebel, to embrace you with all sympathy in our hearts, to see through you the good authority of the Creator and Redeemer, and that you would help us by the Spirit to be a light before all men. We pray in Jesus' name.